Okay. Hello and welcome to Sport Professor Podcast, a show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Stakansky, and today we will begin to examine the intersection between sport and ethics, beginning with the discussion of what ethics is and moving to cover how ethics apply in the sports setting. We will tackle the central comparative purpose of sport and discuss how ethical violations threaten it. So if you ever wondered what the difference between cheating and gamesmanship is, or how discussions of ethics in sport can serve a grander purpose, then this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast. So this week, I want to do something a little bit different. Our past podcasts have dealt with a number of topics in the sports setting. We've talked about sport marketing and sport consumer behavior quite a bit. We've really, these past few weeks, dived into the idea of game theory and its application to numerous sports settings. Talked about the history of sport in ancient societies and how it's evolved over time. But we haven't yet got to one of my favorite topics to talk about in front of students and to lecture on. And that is sport ethics. So today, what I want to do is I want to just kind of slowly dip our foot into the waters and get a feel for what sport ethics is and talk about one specific topic that is seemingly relevant at this point in time as the Patriots win another Super Bowl, and that's the idea of cheating and gamesmanship. What is the difference between the two? Where is the line? And how does all this tie in with our sporting world and in our largest society? But before we get to all of that, I want to start with three basic questions. The first, what is ethics? The second, what are sports? And the third, how did the two of these things work together? To begin with, though, let's talk about what ethics are. And there's a lot of different definitions that are out there. And many of you maybe have even taken an introduction to ethics course when you were in college or been introduced to the topic when you were in high school or maybe took a philosophy class where you had the conversation. But the way that I like to define it is from Corset and Hums who say that ethics are, quote, the systematic study of values that guide individual decision making. In this way, ethics refers to the principles and concepts of what is right in what is wrong conduct and it focuses very specifically on the decisions and on this idea of right and wrong in specific societal settings so we must determine what principles are relevant in a particular setting before we can determine what is considered right and what is considered wrong because depending on the setting or depending on the societal context those things might change. So let's then talk about the setting of sports. And in doing that, let's first define what are sports. And thinking about all the podcasts that we've done and talking all this time about sport management, sport marketing, sporting behavior, we've yet to really define what sports are. Well, sports are defined in a very easy and simple way. Think of it as a pyramid, where at the very bottom of the pyramid, you have playing. And then right above that, you have games. And then at the top of that, you have sports. And as you move 
from one to the other, we slowly start to get more and more structure within every activity. So the idea of play is a very loose activity. There's really no structure, no rules. As we move up to games, games now have a little bit more rules. They have structure, but those rules can change depending on how we play. As we move up to sports, we have a very structured activity. We have formal rules that are in place. We need very specific equipment. We need very specific facilities. We also have to have some type of physical activity involved. Now, that is a key defining characteristic of sports that we're going to come back to when we get our conversation about ethics in sports. So we have to have a physical component. And then finally, we have to have an outcome that matters to people, and that outcome cannot be predetermined. So we could actually have a conversation and have a whole 40-minute podcast just on our things sports or not. The most common thing that professors will point to in this conversation is something like wrestling. And by wrestling, I mean the WWE. By definition, that cannot be a sport because the outcome is predetermined. They know before they enter into the ring who is going to win and who is going to lose. So it doesn't meet the defining characteristics of a sport. The more common conversation right now trying to classify something as as a sport or not are esports or the activity of people playing video games to establish who's the better video game player. The conversation in that debate really centers around the notion of physicality of playing the video game. What type of physical aspects are required for it? Some people make the argument that there actually is a lot of hand-eye coordination that is involved with playing video games. There's stamina that's involved with it, and so they would classify it as a sport. Other people say no, that's not enough physicality for there to be a sport in place. And so we could have all these conversations, but the important thing I want you to understand and know is that we have to have a physical component, and we have to have some type of rules that govern what is happening within the contest, and finally, that we have to have an outcome that matters to people that is not predetermined. I'm not concerned too much right now with us defining something as a sport. I just need us to know what those definitional components are because that's going to come back to us when we start talking about cheating and gamesmanship in the context of sports. So we've hit the first two questions pretty easy out of the gate. We now know what ethics are. We now have a general idea of what sports are. The harder question, though, is this third one, and that is how do these two things work together? How do sport and ethics work together to form this field of study which we call sport ethics? Well, the general definition or the general idea is that sport ethics is just the study of ethical principles within the sports setting. But what does that mean? Or how do we actually go about doing that? Well, there's two branches of that. We have the idea of the interaction of sport and society, and we have the idea of managerial decision-making. Let's deal with that idea of sport and society first. People that study sport oftentimes will argue when they're talking about the importance of what they're doing. They will say one of the most valuable things that sport has to offer is that sport serves as a microcosm for the world. What happens in sport is just a reflection of what's happening in society at large. And so through studying what's happening on the sporting field or even within sporting organizations, we can actually better understand what's happening in society. In this way, sport serves just as a mirror for what society is. And the most common example of this is Jackie Robinson and the idea of the reintegration of baseball. 
So Jackie Robinson, we could look at his life. We could look at how he is brought into baseball and then how he's treated both on the field by his teammates and the fans and then off the field as well, traveling around the country and playing. And we could look at that and what he was facing. And by examining that, we actually have a pretty good idea for how society was treating minorities at that time, specifically for how society was treating African Americans. And so in this way, sport serves as a microcosm, as a mirror, as a way to understand what's happening in the world. And that same thing is true with ethics. And one of my favorite ideas or one of my favorite conceptions of this was actually written by an individual named Simon in 2004 in a book that he published. And he said, quote, those critical of sports or bored by athletic competition must admit that sports play a significant role in our lives, even if they believe that dominance is misguided or even harmful. At the very least, it is surely worth discovering what it is about sports that calls forth favorable responses among so many people from so many different cultures. Reflecting upon sport raises issues that not only have intrinsic interests, but also go beyond the bounds of sports itself. So what are some examples that we can think of that reflect what Simon's saying, of things that go beyond sport itself? Well, there's four things that I kind of wrote down, and these are my go-tos. But the first one is the idea of, what is the social responsibility of our athletes? In other words, what responsibility do athletes have to give back to their community? We see them making millions of dollars. We're going to have a billionaire athlete probably very soon with LeBron James and all that he's doing. But what is his responsibility to help the individuals who live in his community? What is his responsibility to give back? Well, LeBron James is a prime example, like I said, because he has given back so much to where he's from in Akron in the greater Cleveland area. He is a very socially responsible person. He wants to help individuals that grew up and had hard childhoods just like them. So he went and started a school. And so we can look at sport having good in doing good in our society. Well, how does this reflect to society as a whole? Well, there's actually a whole field of study called corporate social responsibility in which we ask the same questions to corporations. We ask, what is their responsibility to give back to the communities that they're in? What should they be doing to try to better the lives of not only maybe their workers, but also the people who live in the area right around their corporate headquarters or who live in the area that are affected by the decisions that they make? And we can look to sport athletes and we can look to sporting organizations as maybe a tool to understand and study this. We could also talk about this idea of the growth of commercialization within sport. If we go back 20, 30 years, the idea of sport as a financially viable business is very different than what it is today. Yes, they were worth 20 years ago, still millions of dollars. But now Forbes just came out the other day with the valuations of NBA franchises and the number one franchise, the New York Knicks, was valued at over $4 billion. Well, why is that the case? What is leading to this growth in value and the growth of commercialization of professional sports? And even growth and commercialization of college sports. We have the NCAA basketball tournament that will generate over a billion dollars coming up. What about the commercialization of even high school sports where we have high schools getting corporate sponsorship deals from companies like Nike or Under Armour? Well, we could look at all that and we could study that in the context of sport and that could then reflect 
on other aspects of our lives in the commercialization of things like social media, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. We can look at it in the corporatization and the commercialization of other entities out there. By understanding sport, this kind of smaller entity in the large landscape, by understanding it within sport, we can then apply it to these other aspects. Maybe the two best examples of of Simon's statement is the emphasis that we place on winning in elitism. Think about in sport, we're going to talk about this more coming up, but the purpose of sport is to establish who is better on the playing field or on the pitch or within the confines of the athletic competition. And we place as a society, especially in American society and American culture, we place the most value on winning and being elite and being the best. Well, how does this tie into other aspects of our society? We see the same ideas tying into organizations and corporations. We don't want to have just good corporations. We want to be the best or the top of the charts. We want to have the most money, not just some money, but we want to have the most money. And so we can see this emphasis that we place on winning in athletic competitions also take root in other aspects of our lives where we emphasize winning and being elite above all else. And finally, the example that we'll get into later The idea of fair play. In sport, we tend to want to have fair play in the course of a contest because we want to establish who is the best. In business and in life, we tend to value the same thing. We want things to be done in a fair manner. Now, the question becomes, how does the notion of fair play and winning tie in together? And that's what we'll get to here in a minute. But the key point that Simon's making here is that the examination into these ethical issues and other ethical issues in sport is going to have implications to society as a whole. Sport just provides us a context in which to study. Now, I did say that ethics is contextually based. And so the ethical things that are happening on the sports field might serve as a way of studying, but we would also have to take into account the contextual settings of society when we're having those ethical conversations. Now, the second approach we can have to studying ethics in sports, outside of saying that sports is a microcosm that lets us understand society better, is the idea of managerial decision-making that's going on. So Simon goes on to say that sports not only reflect a society's ethical standards, but also contains its own moral qualities that influence societal structures and institutions. Sports management must confront general and unique ethical problems in administration and organization. So sport managers must acquire special knowledge to assure that they're well-equipped to serve and preserve sport in an ethically and morally sound way. So what he's saying here is that because sport is unique and has unique contextual aspects to it, you actually need to study ethics within those contexts so that the decision makers that are involved in sport, your sport managers on the professional level, your GMs, your owners, your presidents, even your sport marketers, that they understand the context so that way they can make the ethically sound or morally sound decision. So in the end, ethics and morality are generally viewed as critical areas in today's world. And Dasani and Rosenberg go on to say that sport environment is really no different than the world we live in. In other words, there's not so much that there are too many abuses in moral and ethical reasoning or moral ethical decision making, but rather that in sport, the magnitude, severity, and far-reaching influences of these ills are just staggering because they're put under a microscope. And an example of the managerial decision-making that needs sound ethical 
reasoning in sport is the FIFA scandal that happened back in 2015. Now, I'm not going to go all into what this scandal was because we could have a whole podcast on that and maybe we'll do that in the future. But just for those of you who've never heard of this scandal, back in 2015, there were 14 members of FIFA who were indicted by U.S. federal prosecutors for money laundering, wire fraud, and racketeering. Basically, the top-ranking officials of FIFA were taking bribes and payments in approximately $110 million. They were taking that money from various individuals to try to sway them to vote in favor of certain countries hosting FIFA tournaments. Now, most notably, things like the World Cup, but there are also other tournaments that FIFA oversees, like the CONFACAF Gold Cup. And the structure that FIFA had at the time made it right for such corruption. Now, again, I don't want to get too far into the weeds on the structure, but just so you have an idea, you had a 22-person executive committee who voted on the World Cup. They would vote on the location of that tournament. This became problematic because... If you have 14 people that are getting indicted on things like bribery, laundering, and wire fraud, it becomes very easy to pay those people to award your country or maybe your confederation the tournament. And why would people want to do that? Well, hosting a tournament generates millions of dollars for the host country. So there's a big incentive to actually try to corrupt these individuals. Now, again, most people very easily would say, well, that's an unethical practice. And it actually led to unethical decision-making and unethical actions by the FIFA executive committee. So FIFA had to make, go through and make a decision. Well, how can we change this? How can we try to avoid this in the future? And the idea that they came up with in past and that's now in place is that every country gets one vote in FIFA Congress. Every country that is in place gets one vote in order to determine where these tournaments are going to be held. So all 200 level countries are equally represented. So why, yes, we have a system in place that makes corruption a little bit harder and thus makes the actions more ethically and morally sound, it's not a perfect system. And there are some potential ethical problems in representation. So it's not perfect. But the point is, in the end, ethics deals with this tug of war, as Dasani and Rosenberg said, this tug of war in the relation to philosophy, values, and the purpose of programs. It deals with the idea of The behavior of coaches, athletes, spectators, sponsors, media personnel, and sport governing bodies and officials. It also deals with the role of government agencies and political and economic infrastructure in sport. Ethics in sport really touches every aspect of what's happening around the game and also what's happening on the field. Which leads us pretty nicely then into our conversation that I want to spend the most time on today. And that is the idea of cheating in gamesmanship. So my desire to want to do this was based in part off of my love of our conversation of ethics in teaching the topic, but also so much of the conversation that happens whenever the Patriots win the Super Bowl. Every time they win, it seems like people try to dismantle what they have done through calling them ethically and morally unsound. And that's no difference this time when Julian Edelman is the MVP of the Super Bowl And the first thing I hear the next day when I listen to talk radio is should he even be allowed to play in the game because he had to serve a suspension at the beginning of the season for four games for PEDs. And people are making this implication that the Patriots are yet again cheating in order to win the contest. And I have, as a Patriots fan, I have a lot of issues with that because it's dismantling and taking away from what they've accomplished. And so I think this conversation around cheating and gamesmanship is really sound for what's actually happening 
on the playing field today. But before we dive into that, we have to go back and we have to start with a central question to the whole argument, which gets to some of the things that we've already pointed to about sports. And that is just what is the central comparative purpose of sport? Why do we have sport at all? To answer this, all we have to do is go back to look at what the definition of sport is. We are engaging in a physical contest with other individuals to try to establish an outcome that is not predetermined, but that matters to us. Well, what is the outcome that we're trying to establish? It's pretty simple. We're trying to determine who is the best. That's it. It doesn't matter if it's a swimming race. We're trying to determine who the best swimmer is. Or if it is a softball game, we're trying to determine the best team is. Or whether it's anything, we're always trying to determine who is the best at that sport. And the idea is, is that whoever wins the game is the best. Now, there's failures in this. There's times where this actually doesn't occur. And we can point to, again, what just happened in the 2018-2019 playoffs as an example. Because we can make the argument in the NFC Championship game, the best team didn't win. The Rams, we could argue, were not the best team. But rather, there was a failure in the contest. Something happened over the, in the course of the contest that resulted in the central comparative purpose not being found. And that would be a refereeing error. And we have refereeing errors all the time. So we could point to that and say, well, the Saints were actually the best team. There was an error in the refereeing that led to us not actually establishing who the best team was. We could also look at things like bad luck. So if we go back to the Patriots' first Super Bowl against the Giants, I will, to this day, say that the Patriots were the better team. They were coming off a 16-0 season. They had just kind of walked their way through the AFC side of the playoffs. In the Super Bowl, they lost, not in my opinion, because they weren't the better team, They lost because of bad luck, because David Tyree makes a a once-in-a-generation catch on his helmet. That's just bad luck. So, again, bad luck can affect who wins the contest, and it can make it so we actually have a failure in this central comparative purpose to establish who is the best on the playing field. We can also have an athlete, maybe just on that day, have an inferior performance, even though they're a superior athlete. And We just ran up against an anniversary that actually points to this, and that's Mike Tyson losing to Buster Douglas. Now, Buster Douglas is from Columbus, Ohio, so I like to claim him as an Ohioan. But you can't tell anyone that he was a better boxer than Mike Tyson. We would say that on that day, Mike Tyson just had an inferior performance. Right? He wasn't playing or wasn't boxing at his best level. And in that particular contest we could actually also point to bad refereeing because if you go and look it seems like the referee didn't pick up the count right when Tyson knocked down Buster Douglas in an earlier round but the idea is that anything that points to what we would consider an unjust victory anything that actually goes against the idea that the winner is the better athlete is a failure in this central competitive purpose now there are two examples that I didn't point to but that also speak to failures in this. And that is the notion of cheating in gamesmanship. But before we get into those, let me ask the question of why do we care about unjust victories? Why am I even bringing this up? Why are everyone talking about failures in the central competitive purpose? Well, an analysis of unjust outcomes in sporting contests diminishes the idea that winning is the end-all be-all. If an outcome happens, not because a team is better, but because something else is occurring that's affecting that outcome, it takes away the whole purpose of what sport is. So from an ethical standpoint, 
it might actually help to weaken the motivation to resort to morally objective means to securing a victor. In other words, if we have an unjust outcome or something that's happening that's causing the inferior team to win, I, as the superior team, might say, well, that's against the purpose of sport, so why don't I go ahead and cheat or act an ethically or morally improper way to try to make sure that I am recognized as that best team? And so it becomes important for us to understand and ask these a little bit more complex questions. But in understanding that, and understanding how an unjust outcome, something like bad refereeing, might lead to an individual cheating or employing gamesmanship to help secure the victory when they feel like they're the better athlete or the better team, we first have to understand what cheating and gamesmanship are. So cheating, very simply defined, is any attempt to break the rules of a game while escaping detection and punishment. The key aspect here is not the breaking the rules of a game, because we'll see that in gamesmanship as well. It's the fact that we're trying to escape detection and punishment of the other individuals or of the referees. So when an athlete cheats, they're undermining this purpose of athlete competition. How? Because if I'm cheating and winning, it does not establish me as a superior athlete. Rather, it just establishes me as being better because of something else that doesn't have to do with athleticism or doesn't have to do with a physical activity, which is core to our definition of sport. So because a violation of the rules gives a competitor an unfair advantage over his or her opponent, we're subverting athletic competition as a legitimate test for athletic interest. Now, important component of this is the rules itself because the rules itself actually define and determine what is okay and what is not okay. And let's look at a couple examples, historic examples of cheating that illustrate this fact. So maybe the most common one that's talked about in sport ethics classes or sport ethic conversations is the Black Sox scandal of 1919. Now, some of you might not be too familiar with it. Just the brief overview was that eight White Sox players were caught accepting money to lose on purpose the Cincinnati Reds in the 1919 World Series. They were paid to throw games. So how does this fit the definition of cheating? Well, if I'm paid to throw a game, the does the best team actually win the contest? We don't know. The Cincinnati Reds might have been the best team, but we're not able to tell that through the athletic competition that occurred on the field. All we know is that they won in part because eight players were purposely trying to lose. Another kind of historical example that's commonly pointed to is the 1980 Boston Marathon, in which Rosie Ruiz ran a time of 2.5 hours and actually won the women's category. However, it was later revealed that she had disappeared into the crowd and then showed up on the course a half a mile from the finish line to win. Oh, and by the way, to qualify for the Boston Marathon, she quote-unquote ran the New York City Marathon. Well, in that race, she actually took the subway during the race as a way to help her qualify and get her time down. So again, her winning the race didn't show that she was the best athlete. It only showed that she broke the rules and got to the finish line before anyone else. Now, she was disqualified and and kicked out, and they ended up giving it to the person who finished second, but her winning the race didn't establish her as the best athlete. So that goes against the idea of the core conceptual purpose of what sport is. There are two examples in soccer that are commonly pointed to. We have 
Hand of Goggle in 1986. And then we have the second Hand of Goggle. Now, the 1986 one is a little bit more famous because it was in the World Cup final. It was with Maradona, arguably the best or second best player of all time. He scored a goal using his hand. It, it appeared on first view that he had gone up for the header and actually hit it off his head. But upon looking at replays, you can very clearly tell that he actually punched the ball in because he couldn't reach it with his head. Well, that goal goes directly against the rules of the game. And he did it to try to avoid detection. He didn't want anyone to call him for the penalty. He purposely did it to, in trying to avoid detection to help him have an upper hand in the contest. So do we know that Argentina was the better team? Maybe not, because he had to cheat in order to obtain that. The second hand of God goal dealt with Henri in France in the qualifying for the World Cup is a very obvious handball that happened inside the box in which the ball hit off Henri's hand and he scores a goal and that sent them into the World Cup, but it wasn't detected by the officials. So again, we don't know that France was a better team that day. And maybe the, the best example from the last 30 years is Lance Armstrong in the Tour de France, taking supplements in order to gain a competitive advantage over his competitors. He was doing it on purpose to try to get around the rules and avoid detection but we don't know that he was the best cyclist in those years that he won because he was doing something that was outside the rules of the contest. And in that reason, we're again subverting the basic components of what that athletic contest is. So the reason why cheaters do not deserve to win is pretty obvious. Their victories are due not to their athletic superiority, which is the core purpose of competing in sport, but rather to violations of rules which their opponents are obeying. So the claim is based on the assumption that the athlete who deserves to win is the one who performs better within the game's rules and under the conditions of equity. Now, this gets to a little bit harder conversation because it gets this idea, what are the roles of different rules in a contest and what are the roles of referees? So to get an understanding for that aspect, I want to just do a very easy thought experiment with you. So there are three umpires sitting in a bar having a Diet Coke and talking about their jobs and they're trying to determine who is the better umpire. In talking about how they call the game, the first umpire says, I call them like I see them. The second umpire then responds to that and says, I call them as they are. And the third umpire kind of scoffs at both and then he replies, they ain't till I call them. So which of these three umpires would you agree with which of these three umpires is actually upholding the role of the rules in the game of baseball? Well, we can make the argument that they all are, but they all three in what they're saying are reflecting something that is core to what rules try to do within the game and the role that they play within contest. So the first one saying, I call him like I see him. He's saying he's recognizing that there are rules that are out there and that his role is to try to see something and call it as he interprets it. The prime example of this is Armando Galarraga, who was a pitcher for the Detroit Tigers back in 2010. And he had a perfect game going into the ninth inning. He actually gets the first two outs. And then he has a ground ball that's hit up the first base side. And he goes to cover first base like he is supposed to. The first baseman tosses him the ball. He catches it and he steps on the bag. Beating the runner to the bag should be the last out of the game, giving him a perfect game. But the umpire called the runner safe. The umpire called it like he saw it. From his angle, he saw the runner beat Galarraga to the bag. 
So he upheld the rules as he saw the rules applying to that situation. That's what the first umpire is saying. The second umpire is saying something a little bit different. He's saying there are rules and there's the real world and the real thing that happens, but there is no gap. In other words, what the rules say is exactly how it's called, and that's it. He is not recognizing that there's any difference between the two. The third umpire is saying something, again, completely different. He's saying there are rules which actually give the referee or the umpire the power to determine when something is the case in a game. So something is not the case until the umpire makes the determination that it is the case. So in this kind of thought experiment, we're showing you how rules can be interpreted and applied in different ways by the same official. The rules guide the athletic competition, but how they're interpreted and how they're called is dictated by a referee, which means we have the opportunity to try to take advantage of the rules as they are written. And that leads us into a distinction between what is cheating and what is actually gamesmanship. So gamesmanship can be kind of a slippery concept and it can be hard to define. But the basic idea of it is, unlike cheating, it does not involve violating the rules of the games in hopes of avoiding detection. Rather, it is allowed or defined within the construct of the game. For example, using a legally but maybe morally dubious design tactic to unsettle opponents. Think about trash talking. Trash talking isn't against the rules in any major sport, but people do it. Why? Well, we do it to try to get in our opponent's head. We do it to try to unsettle them, as I said, or to try to make them not perform up to their full athletic ability. Most people would say, well, there's not a problem with that. However, if we go back to what the core purpose of an athletic competition is, which is to establish who is the better athlete, if I'm getting in an opponent's head by trash-talking them, then I beat them. I didn't beat them maybe because I'm the better athlete. I beat them because they didn't perform up to their highest standards. We talked about that with Mike Tyson. We said he didn't perform up to his standard, and that was part of the reason why he lost. So we didn't actually establish who the better person was in the athletic contest. Just the same way that if a person cheats, we don't establish, trash-talking can have that same outcome. Another example, think about taking maybe an inordinate amount of time between points in a game of tennis or a volleyball match. I take a lot of time to try to slow my opponent down, to make them have to think more, to make them have to be on the court longer, to try to gain a competitive advantage. Maybe not establishing, again, who's the better athlete, but maybe it's just establishing that I won the game. But probably the most common example is in the sport of basketball. And it comes really in two different ways. The first way, imagine that your team is down five points with 30 seconds left in the game. The other team has the ball. What does your team do? They foul a player on the other team. Deliberately, they're violating the rules of the game. But why are they doing that? They're doing it to gain a strategic advantage. They're doing it because if I didn't foul you, let's say it's a professional basketball game, then you're going to run 24 seconds off the clock. You're not going to shoot the ball to the very end of the shot clock. And even if you miss it, I only now have six seconds to score five points. Well, even if I score a three-pointer right away, you get the ball back, the game's over. So there's no way for me to win. So what do I do? I intentionally foul you. I stop the clock. I make you go and shoot free throws so I can get the ball back more. Well, fouling you is against the rules of the game. However, I'm not doing it to avoid detection. I'm not trying to sneakily foul you. I'm fouling you right in front of the ref, so they call the foul. I'm violating the rules on purpose, not trying to avoid detection, but I'm doing it to gain a competitive advantage. 
And so maybe I do that and I end up getting lucky and you miss your two foul shots and I go and I shoot a three and I do it again. You miss your two foul shots and I shoot another three and I win the game. I got lucky and I took advantage of the rules. We consider that gamesmanship. What used to be called hack-a-shack and then it was called hack-a-howard. Now it's just hacking players who can't shoot foul shots. Maybe you have a dominant player like Shaquille O'Neal or like Dwight Howard in his prime who can score at will because they're so big, but they can't shoot foul shots. So what did, what did teams do? They purposely fouled Shaquille O'Neal. They made him shoot a shot, which was a lower percent chance that he made in order to get a competitive advantage. They knew that they weren't athletically as good as Shaquille O'Neal, but they tried to use the rules and subvert them, not trying to cheat and get around the, the rules, but using them to their advantage to try to gain whatever advantage they could. Again, even though it's not cheating, they're going against what the core purpose of sport is, which is to establish who is the superior athlete within the contest. Another thing that we can call this is something scholars refer to as fixed penalties. So we give a specific penalty for an action, we define it within the rules of the game, and so in that way, it is almost that it is allowed. And people will argue that fixed penalties are a good thing to have within sport because we now know the outcome of an action that we take that goes against the rule. And as a result, we can make a more educated decision about what we want to do. And so without them, without establishing a fixed penalty for what we're doing, we open ourselves up to opportunities for poor ethical decision-making because we don't know what's going to happen when we do something. So we can't conceptualize how serious or not serious the penalty is of our action without having these rules around it. And so if we take all this into our discussion of the Patriots, the Patriots have been accused of cheating. They've been accused of gamesmanship throughout really all of their postseason runs over the last 18 years to various extents. From this year with having conversations about having a suspended player playing in the game, people said that Julian Edelman shouldn't have been able to play because he had tested positive in the offseason and was banned four games for using a performance-enhancing drug. Well, that is true, but there was a fixed penalty that is attached to using a performance-enhancing drug. If you're caught, it's a four-game suspension. Now, Julian Edelman and the use of performance-enhancing drugs would be classified as cheating. Why? Because he's doing something to gain an advantage and he's trying to not be detected. He's not doing steroids right in front of the tester and saying, okay, I did them, now give me a punishment. He's trying to avoid detection in doing it, so that would be cheating. However, he served out his fixed penalty. He served out the penalty for his actions, which was defined by the NFL as four games. So he, going into his decision on whether to use performance-enhancing drugs or not, he got to make a decision knowing the outcome. He knew if he got caught, this would be the penalty, and he did it anyways. Now, he served the penalty, and he was back on the field after those four games and, and dominated throughout the playoffs. So he operated within the confines of the rules of the game. Now, the Patriots have also been accused of cheating, but it really mores gamesmanship. If you go back to when they played the Ravens in the playoffs where they ended up beating the Seattle Seahawks, there was a time where they were actually really struggling to move the ball and score. And they decided to run a number of what you would call gadget plays. They ran a wide receiver pass play in which Julian Edelman threw a touchdown. They also ran a lot of weird formations in which they stacked the line in different ways. They would only have three players around the ball and they would put other players out wide and have players who's, who wouldn't normally be eligible checking with the referee as eligible. So within the rules of the game of football, they figured out a way to manipulate what was happening in order to gain a competitive advantage. Now, were they the better team on the field that day? 
No, they weren't. But through using gamesmanship, through using the rules and understanding what they were, they were able to make a tactical decision and come out victorious. We could go through other examples, deflate gate with them, the idea of deflating a football. In theory, that would be classified as cheating. If you go through and actually read the reports, though, and actually read what happened, there's no proof that Tom Brady knowingly deflated a football to try to avoid detection. If he's not knowingly defeating a football to try to avoid detection, then there is no cheating because it doesn't fit our definition. People want to try to make it fit the definition, but there's no proof that he knowingly did something to avoid detection. The issue that a lot of Patriots fans have with the NFL is the NFL actually went outside of its fixed penalties that they had in place. They have rules in place for how that issue should be dealt with, and they went outside of them. And that's why Tom Brady ends up suing the league and taking it all the way up to right under the Supreme Court and challenging the decision because he said they broke or went against the fixed penalties and the fixed policies that they had in place. You could do the same thing with Spygate. Spygate where the Patriots, in that case, were cheating. They were doing something that the NFL classified as illegal. They were filming plays that were happening during games. They weren't filming practices. That's long been found to be a false narrative that it's not understood or looked into by most people. They were filming games, and they were filming the game and relaying it down to the coach on the sideline. The NFL has a specific rule against that. They were doing it to try to avoid detection and to gain a competitive advantage. They broke that rule. They paid a penalty for it, and that is that. So the Patriots kind of fit into this conversation of gamesmanship and unethical behavior and cheating. But all these actions I want to point out have the same consequence. Whether it's gamesmanship or cheating, all of it is designed to go around what we said the central comparative purpose of sport is, which is to establish who is the best athlete or who is the best at that particular sport or discipline. They're just defined slightly different. In one case, we're not trying to avoid detection. In the other case, we don't care if we're detected, but we're doing it again to hopefully give ourselves a better chance at winning the contest and coming out victorious. So most people will say, well, why does this matter? Why do we care about this? Yes, it makes sense that we would have this conversation within the confines of sports to understand what's happening on the playing field. But go back to what I said about how we actually study sport ethics and and this idea of sport as a microcosm. Because the same thing can happen within businesses, within the world at large. We have people in businesses that are doing things that are more gamesmanship. They know the rules that are in place and they're operating within those rules, maybe pushing the boundaries, not trying to avoid detection, but just trying to give themselves an upper hand. Then we also have companies or individuals that are purposely cheating the rules. They're trying to cook the books or avoid detection or do things that they know are illegal to make their company more valuable or to make more money. So we can see and study this in sport. It's an easier conversation for us to have because we can point to specific examples and the outcomes that we're really concerned with aren't life or death. But we need to then remember, we can take those same aspects and apply them within society at large to better understand how businesses and people operate in their lives too. And I want to leave you with this, because we can apply this in all these different settings, not just in sport, but also in life and and in business. One of my favorite quotes of all time, it deals with this aspect, and that's this. If you dip your toe in the water, soon you'll be up to your neck. 
And all that says is whether we're talking about gamesmanship or talking about cheating, when we're trying to go around what the set rules are, when we get away from the central purpose of anything is, whether it's a sporting event, whether that's business, as soon as we start to push those boundaries and we dip our toe in the water, eventually we're going to say, well, my toe's already in, let me just go up to my ankle. Let me just go a little bit more and a little bit more. And then all of a sudden you're going to be drowning because you're going to be up to your neck in those actions. As soon as we start to act in an unethical way, as soon as we start to push those boundaries, more and more unethical behavior becomes okay for us. So we need to be careful of that going forward. If you've liked our conversation today about this application of ethics into one specific aspect of what sport is, please feel free to reach out to us and let us know on our Instagram page at The Sport Professor. And while you're there, feel free to follow us so you can stay up to date on what the latest podcasts are and when they're posted. If you want more podcasts that deal with this topic of ethics and talking about it in different ways and apply it to different organizations, please feel free to follow up with us. Until next time, though, I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast.